0: The following message was given at Emmanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. All right, the book of Jude. Well, Jude is uh, the second to last book of the Bible, and it is very short, just one chapter. And so instead of doing sort of an overview, uh, highlights of the book, I thought we would do our best given the time that we have, uh, to sprint through this book and, uh, and possibly, if we have the time to do it, look at each of the, each of the verses, uh, not in depth or anything, but um, to try and uh, sort of uh, summarize exactly what Jude is after in this book. So there's, uh, there's four sections we're going uh, to look at, and we'll hop around a little bit in the book, but um, I'll have all the, the texts up here on the screen. So, a summary of the book of Jude. What is he doing? Why is he writing? Jude is urging the church to hold fast to sound doctrine, to reclaim those whose faith is wavering, and to oppose false teaching that is threatening the church's life with God as their king. And so. Uh, This is often turned to as a book to sort of uh, look at uh, for apologetics and the the ideas that we need to defend the faith, and he certainly talks about that, and it's a very important part of this book, Uh, but there are other elements as well uh, that we are going to discuss. So the first thing that Jude does is he offers an encouragement to the church, and we see that in verses 1 through 2. And he reminds us that Christians are called, beloved, and kept. The text says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. What's interesting about that? Who else was his brother? Jesus, right? But as Jude introduces himself, he doesn't say, I'm a brother of Jesus. He says, I'm a brother of James. Why? Because he's recognizing that Jesus is, I am not him. And he is not me. We are not alike. And so he identifies with his brother James, uh, but he's a half brother of Jesus as well. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. And so the first thing he identifies here is that we are called. And linguistically, there's really no difference between saying that we're called or saying that we are chosen. This is, a doctrine, this is a reference to the doctrine of election. And so what Jude is saying is that we are those who are called, and by this we have been uh, what we, we call theologically efficaciously called. So the call was effective. It was settled. And so God called us. And the reason he brings this up is because in this letter, he's going to be dealing with uh, primarily the issue of apostasy. And he wants to remind us that if you are in Christ, you are called. You're one of his children. Uh, Because he's going to bring up a lot of warnings and a lot of danger. Uh, And he wants to remind us that we are in Christ. We are his chosen people and he's not going to get rid of us. Second, he says we are beloved. And quite simply, what a father gives when he adopts a child, most importantly, is that he gives his love. And we can rest safely in our calling as God's people because we are loved. And not only are we loved, we have the amazing truth of the Scripture. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And so if you are in Christ There's no greater thing to look to to know that you are loved than the fact that Jesus Christ lived for you and died for you, taking upon himself the penalty that was for your sin. And thirdly, he shows us that we are kept. In other words, if you are a child of God, you are forever a child of God because you have been called and you are loved, and by virtue of Christ's life and death and resurrection, you are kept and you will never fall away. And so he's highlighting the doctrine here of the perseverance or preservation of the saints. This is very much along the lines of what Jesus said in John six thirty-seven: All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And so Jesus is affirming and Jude is affirming what Jesus has said, that once you're in the Father's hand, once you're in the Son's hands, nobody can take you out and you are kept. And so he starts this letter with some great encouragement for believers because uh, a major portion of this letter is not so encouraging. Um, So he wants to remind us who we are in Christ. The first category from there that we're going to look at is uh, what Jude lays out in terms of what Christians do. Several verses here. I'll just uh, run through these very quickly. Verse 3, he shows us that Christians contend for the faith. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And so when Jude sits down to write about our common salvation, he finds it necessary that one of the main focuses in doing so is because of the circumstances before them and to exhort them to contend for the faith. And so we can summarize this a bit differently and get a sense of what he's saying. Brothers and sisters, we have a common salvation, which is from our faith in Christ, that we must contend for. And here's the point, Judas saying that salvation, the message of the gospel is at stake. If we get the truth wrong, and we've seen this as we've looked at Galatians, if we get the truth wrong, we get the gospel wrong. And if we get the gospel wrong, we're preaching another Christ and no other Christ will save. There is only one faith and he calls that the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It's worth contending for, it's worth fighting for, it's worth dying for. He goes on to say that Christians are watchful and aware, in verse 4, for certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality And deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. You remember where the Apostle Paul writes, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And among your own selves will rise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And we see it over and over and over again all throughout the New Testament, these warnings about false teachers coming within the church. And the plain New Testament teaching is that the faith will be repeatedly threatened from within. The faith, once for all, delivered to the saints, is repeatedly threatened from within the church. And so, Christians must be watchful and aware. In order to do that, What do we need to know? We must know what the truth is. We have to know the scriptures. We can never rest in knowing more of God's word and how it works in relationships to other parts of the Bible and how to apply it to our lives. This is one of the most serious things that we undertake as Christians, is understanding the word of God. We can never hear the gospel enough, we can never remind ourselves of the truth of the Bible enough, we can never know enough truth, enough sound doctrine, enough of what God has revealed to his people. And so part of this exhortation from Jude is that we keep learning and we keep digging and we keep understanding so that together as the church we can be watchful and aware and we can continue to contend for the faith with the sword of the Spirit. He shows us in verse 5 that Christians persevere in following Jesus Christ. He says, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now, Jude here is very brief in his description, but he's dealing with the Exodus, and he gives enough information for us uh, to know that. Obviously, his audience, uh, who he's writing to, would have been very familiar with that. But notice here, Jude says that Jesus saved a people from the land of Egypt. In other words, the pre-incarnate, pre-flesh and blood Christ was dealing with the Israelites in the wilderness, and Jude is reminding those who he's writing to, of what happened as an example for us. And you'll recall that Paul also makes reference to Jesus in the wilderness with the Israelites. And so what's the point here? The point is that the Israelites, and we've probably all read accounts of the Israelites in the wilderness, and we think, what were you people thinking? Right? It was all around you. It's all so obvious. Look at all these amazing things that God is doing And especially in those days of the exodus and all the days prior entering into the promised land, they saw so much of God's supernatural work on their behalf. What were you thinking? Well, the reality is you and I wouldn't have been any different. We're weak, we're fickle, we're sinful people with a lot of brokenness that can only be put back together when we're looking to Christ for our life. But if you're believing in Christ alone, remember he reminded us you are kept. You will not fall away. But that doesn't mean that there aren't those who will, will never see the land of milk and honey because they do not continue in the faith. They stop following Jesus. And so Jude's warning here is serious. If you want to escape God's judgment, you must follow Christ until the end. But we also need to be reminded, if you are truly in Christ, you will follow Christ to the end. Remember in 1 John, he he deals with this issue in one single verse. He says, if they went out from us because they were never of us. And so if someone leaves the faith, it's not that they were a Christian and now they're not. It's the simple fact that they were never in the faith in the first place. And so the people of Israel did not, many of the people of Israel, did not persevere, but they fell away and they were destroyed in their unbelief and disobedience. Christians who have been saved from their former slavery to sin need to persevere in the faith, to persevere in obedience to the end. If we are to enter into the kingdom of God, the true promised land that has been secured for us by Christ He shows us in verse 6 that Christians submit to the lordship of Christ. It says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Well, that's just really plain, isn't it? The point, though, that Jude is making is not about who the angels are specifically, or what they did in their sin, but rather the fact that there are fallen angels, whoever they are, and they're inevitably going to be judged because of their rebellion. That's the point he's making, that these angels are being judged for their rebellion. And so whether this is about the Nephilim in Genesis 6, or a reference to the non-canonical book of Enoch. Maybe it's a reference to the the Greek myth of the Titans. All of these ideas have been brought up as possibilities for what he's writing about. There's some fun stuff to read about those things. But Jude's point isn't for us to get stuck in all the tall grass to figure out exactly what he's referencing here. His audience knew what he's talking about, more, more than likely, and the point is the bigger principle. Jude's point relates to the false teachers still, and it has to do with this position of authority, and, and specifically, submission to authority. Now, notice, Jude says the angels did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. And so whatever that means, whatever that looks like, is up for debate. But the point is that that they were in sin in doing so. They had turned from a privileged position to sin and rebellion. And the comparison here is with the Israelites. The Israelites did the same thing that he's already mentioned. And there will be several others along the way. But notice how God punishes them. He says, he has kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And so not even the angels are beyond the scrutiny and judgment of God. And in fact, here Jude says that they're kept for it. Here's the lesson. We must be aware of this reality. And we must have in mind the obligations that God has given to us, submitting ourselves to the lordship of Christ and walking in obedience to his word. The angels did not do this. And by extension, he's showing us that obviously uh, false teachers are not doing this. This is what he's getting to. He's talking about these wolves that have come into the church. And so when any person lives by their own rule of life for their own purposes, they oppose the authority of the one who has created them and who sustains them. And it's particularly heinous when it's a person who's supposed to be, these false teachers, supposed to be preaching the word of God. And they're leading others astray through a false gospel. He goes on in verse 7 to show us that Christians deny the world, the flesh, and the devil. He writes, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, I assume uh, everyone is familiar with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And notice here, though, that Jude also includes the surrounding cities. It wasn't just Sodom and Gomorrah. Those are highlighted, but the surrounding cities as well. But the main issue here, again, is not necessarily the sin itself. That's just used to illustrate the larger point of God's judgment. And particularly, Jude is dealing with sexual immorality, and specifically in Sodom and Gomorrah, the sexual sin of homosexuality. Now, I will tell you, Genesis 18 and 19 get into some of the most perverse, disturbing things you can read in all the Bible, or anywhere else for that matter. And remember, God destroyed these cities. He completely wiped them out because of their pursuit of what Jude here calls unnatural desires. And he writes that all of this serves as an example for us. The broader issue that Jude is addressing is a warning in the importance of denying ourselves of the temptations that arise in the world, that arise in the desires of the flesh, and the allurements that are put before us as the devil. That's what these are, sensual, sexual, sin, and perversion, and unnatural desires. They come from the world around us, from our own fleshly desires, and from the devil and his temptations. And so for for many of us, these things are tied to sensual, sexual sin. And no doubt that was very prominent in Jude's day as it is in ours. We'll skip down verses 17 through 19. He shows us that Christians avoid worldliness. He says, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, In the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions. Worldly people devoid of the Spirit. So Jude is directly addressing these false teachers here. He reminds his readers, this is what the apostles told us would happen. They're going to be false teachers, they're going to scoff, they're going to mock the faith, they they are uh, going to follow after their own ungodly passions, they're going to say that what God has said is too harsh, it's too restrictive, or they'll tell you he didn't really mean it in the way that you're reading it, it means something else. And so you can engage in sinful sexual immorality and all kinds of other things because in the end, what are they? They are a law unto themselves. They get to determine the meaning of what is being presented. And so you can see very easily how verse 19 simply follows. It is these who cause divisions. Worldly people devoid of the Spirit. And it doesn't take a world-class scholar to see what Judas is saying here. A rejection of God and a rejection of God's authority... And a full immersion of oneself into the ungodly, uh, sensual desires of the flesh will end up dividing the church, because it is nothing short of complete worldliness. That is what these false teachers are doing. And by implication, we can understand that Jude is telling us to avoid these teachers, to avoid their actions. Don't do what they do. Don't do what they encourage you to do. And he alludes here to their spiritual condition, namely that while they may say they're Christians and while they want to claim to be walking with Christ, what is obvious about them is that they are devoid of the Spirit. And we know from the scriptures that if someone is devoid of the Spirit, it means they are not justified. They are not Christians. They are false teachers. He shows us in verses 20 and 21 that Christians stay In the love of God. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And so, in the context here, if we are to continue walking faithfully, if we are not following after the apostate teachers, we must value our communion with God to such an extent that we are willing to give everything else up in order that we might have it. We will not let it go. That's the, that's the attitude that he's calling us to here. If we're to be protected from being led astray by false teachers, we must sustain ourselves in the process of sanctification. And to do that, we must be pursuing communion with God mainly through the means of grace. Being in the scriptures, being in prayer, gathering with the church, worshiping God corporately, uh, utilizing uh, the ordinances of the church, uh, baptism in the Lord's Supper, these means that God has provided that we might commune with him. This is how we stay in the love of God. He shows us in verses 22 and 23 that Christians are merciful and have mercy on those who doubt save others by snatching them out of the fire, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. And so there's three groups of people that Jude is mentioning here. As the church, we're called to have different responses to people depending where they are in light of false teaching. Now, in our uh, our day of rampant talk of, uh, of... Tolerance for everything, um, other than being a Christian, I suppose. um, It's often believed, and a lot of Christians have sort of imbibed this idea, uh, that loving everybody just looks the same, right? That we just, uh, we address every kind of issue in the same way, and we uh, we just love them, whatever that means. It really means nothing at that point that we address everyone in the same way, and this this false notion that Christians are called to be nice. We're not called to be nice. We're called to be kind, kind-hearted, loving, merciful, but not everything that we say in the way that we ought to say it or not everything we do in the way that we ought to do it is not going to be perceived as nice. Remember we have a lord who who called a people a whitewashed tombs or a brood of vipers. We have Paul we saw in Galatians who said these false teachers should just go emasculate themselves because of what they're teaching. Right so this is this is not niceness in the way of the world and so while we are to be merciful that's going to look different depending on the situation that we are addressing. And so sometimes you might make statements and the, uh, the, t- the uh, tone police will show up and tell you that you're using the wrong tone as a Christian or whatever. Now, sometimes it may be the case. We're not called to be jerks. We shouldn't be jerks, but sometimes things need a very straightforward uh, approach. And sometimes that even looks like the way that the prophets approach certain things there are certain things that the only right response is to mock and ridicule them in the way of prophets like uh, Elijah when he was with the prophets of Baal. And so there are three groups of people here that he mentions. Have mercy on those who doubt. So Judas calling us to show kindness in pointing those who doubt to the truth. In the context of Jude specifically, we're talking about those who are confused because of the false teaching they've received. Now, false teachers have a tendency to go after whom? Those who are ignorant. Those who really don't know much. Not, they're not dumb or stupid. They're just, they just don't know. And those are the ones that false teachers love. And so they can take their time to steer them in the way they want to go. But Judas telling us, find those people and help them. Steer them in the right direction or else they will continue in their confused state of mind. Don't let them stay there. Show them mercy, love them, and get them out of there. The second group he addresses are those who are in the fire. He says we are to snatch them out. They're being singed by the flames of hell. They're in it, and so we're called on a rescue operation. There are people that when you say anything contrary to or about their false teachers, they will jump up to defend them, and they will attack. They will tell you that you're judgmental. Or that you shouldn't oppose a servant of God. And you obviously don't know what you're talking about. I hear this all the time in Africa. This is, they've ingrained into the minds of the people there that you shall not touch God's anointed. And so you can't say anything about anyone or how they live or what they teach uh, because you're going against a servant of God. But the reality is they're no servant of God at all. They're a servant of the devil. And so, What will this require? There will be bumps and bruises. This is not a a nice way of showing mercy because you have to go on the offensive against this false teaching. There will be some battle. It won't always be described by others who see it going on as nice, but in the end, you will save their life. Now, the last group here are those who are not just Uh, committed, but they're also propagators of the very error themselves. These are the false teachers and their closest associates. And Jude's giving warning that the mercy given here is to be given with fear. And what mercy do you show a false teacher? Well, you make it known to them that they're a false teacher. They're subtle, they're satanic, They are missionaries of error. They are the teachers of their lies. And when you get near them, he reminds us that's a dangerous place to be. So he says we have to hate even the garment that is polluted by their flesh. And the fear is that we can be corrupted by their evil. He's literally here. He's he's literally talking about the underwear that touches their body. And so he's saying, be very careful as you approach these people, as you call them out in their, their error, be almost phobic about it and despise what they are propagating because it is stained in a filthy manner as with their bodily functions. And so just as you wouldn't handle or embrace the filthy, soiled undergarments of a person, so also do not handle and embrace their teaching. Be warned, beware. It's a a serious warning, and uh, this is how we are to show mercy to the false teachers, to tell them that this is false. Will they listen? Most likely not. Will they reject you? Absolutely. And yet, this is the call. This is what we are to do. So these are the things that he says that Christians do. Now, how do we identify the apostates? What do apostates do? First, we see in verses 8 through 10 that apostates are shameless. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious one. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Now, notice there are three distinct things that Jude says apostates do that prove their shamelessness. There in verse eight, he says, they defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. He says that they rely on their dreams. Which is not to say that they have a dream and are making decisions based on that dream, but rather that they are dreamers. In other words, they have their heads in the clouds and they do whatever they want, however they want, based upon their own whims and desires. And so in that sense, they are asleep to the reality and the condition of their own hearts. They're like every other worldly person. That is like Isaiah said, that they are in a deep sleep snoring on their beds of ease without any sense of danger of what is to come in the judgment. And so while the judgment of God hangs over their heads, they continue on in the complete denial of the fact that they will face destruction. And in the meantime, they continue to shamelessly live, they continue to shamelessly fulfill their own desires, relying on their false delights and a vain hope that their dreams provide. Now remember, Jude is dealing here specifically with religious leaders. Those who put themselves in positions of leadership over the people of God in churches. And what's clear from verse 8 is that they are outrightly rejecting God. Now it's not by their words. you wouldn't be a very effective uh, false teacher in the church if you rejected God with your words. But rather with their lives. The rejection is the shamelessness with which they defile the flesh, they oppose the authority of God, and they blaspheme the angels. And so, Jude is pointing out that these false teachers who have sought to infiltrate the church, they've been taken over by sensuality. They are sexually immoral. They are, they are not only doing so themselves, but they're encouraging others and approving of sexual immorality within the church. And so here Jude is further elaborating on that reality. They defile the flesh. They use and abuse the flesh in ways that were never intended by God. Spiritual perversion is nearly always accompanied by some degree of physical perversion. And when we are not abiding in communion with God, our hearts are so prone to wander toward the immediate desires that we want to experience in the flesh. Now Jude also says that they reject authority, which is to say they reject the lordship of Christ. He's opposing here now with what we saw that Christians do. And then he explains that the apostate teachers blaspheme the glorious ones. What does that mean? Very simply, the angels were understood by some to be the messengers of the law. And the idea was that the, the law was given to the people of God by angelic messengers. And so they were blaspheming the angels because they were the messengers of the law as they understood it. In other words, uh, they were the ones who told people what God requires them to do. Well, of course they're going to blaspheme them because they don't want to hear what God tells them to do. And so you see the relationship here between all three. They reject the lordship of Christ, they blaspheme the messengers of the law, and they live according to the desires of their own flesh. And so what's the overall issue? Really the issue here is holiness, isn't it? Apostate teachers want nothing to do with holiness. They reject it, they scoff at it, they convince others that you're a legalist for insisting on it. Now, before we get off of this, just very quickly, what's going on here in verses 9 and 10? Well, Jude is giving us another example. And you've seen several times, as we've looked by now, he likes to make reference to angels and, and is really describing things that are not in the biblical text, but they're derived from other literature that would have been known or would have been familiar to the original recipients of his letter. The story that Jude is referring to here is that Michael the archangel confronted the devil about the body of Moses after Moses had died. Now, Michael did not dare to issue a rebuke in his own power, but instead he says, the Lord rebuke you. Now, all we know from the Bible about Moses' body from Deuteronomy 34 is that Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab And the Lord buried him in Moab in the valley opposite Beth Peor. But to this day, no one knows where his grave is. So there are numerous stories about what happened. Uh, Conservative biblical historians believe that the most reliable records recount the historical understanding of what happened And that is to say that Joshua accompanied Moses up Mount Nebo, where God showed Moses the land of promise. Moses then sent Joshua back to the people to inform them of his death. And then Moses died. Then God sent the archangel Michael to remove the body of Moses to another place and bury it there. And this is where the the story uh, is outside the scriptures. But the devil opposed him. Disputing Moses' right to an honorable burial. Some even argue that the devil wished to take the body to the people for them to make it an object of worship. And so Michael and the devil argue over the body. The devil brought against Moses a charge of murder because he killed the Egyptian and he hid the body in the sand. But this accusation was no better than slander against Moses. And Michael, not tolerating this slander, said to the devil, the Lord rebuke you. And then the devil takes flight, and Michael removes the body to the place commanded by God where he buried him, and nobody knew where that was. And so that's how the story goes. It's interesting, but the point that Jude is making is more important here than the details of the story. In the dispute over the the body of Moses, Michael's response is significant. First, he recognizes the limits of his power. He does not dare himself to rebuke the devil. It is not in his power to exercise judgment in this argument. Nor does he ascribe too much power to the devil. While he recognizes that it is not his place to judge the devil, he does not think that the devil is above rebuke. Michael also recognizes where the power truly resides. It is in the strength of the Lord, and he relies on that. He calls on God and says, the Lord rebuke you. He's aware of the appropriate boundaries between himself and the devil and the Lord, and he leaves it with the Lord who is the one who will rightfully judge. But what's the point? Well, here's an archangel who's not willing to make use of his own power, and his own judgment to win the dispute. Rather, he calls upon God to rebuke Satan. In contrast, the apostate false teachers blaspheme things which they do not understand. You hear it all the time. False teachers will say, I rebuke you, devil. I rebuke you, this or that, or you know, whatever. I rebuke you, clouds. I rebuke you, ground, whatever. But you see... Even Michael, the archangel, was very serious about this and understood where the judgment came from. Now, here he's saying of these people that they act like animals who are driven by irrational instincts and in so doing they're destroyed. They aren't wise enough to know the limits of their own authority, They take actions based on instinct rather than knowledge or wisdom because their actions, um, and because of their actions, they come from this position. They are more likely to be destroyed by their own actions than they are to be helped. All right, he goes on, verses 11 through 13, to show us that apostates will be known by their rebellion. He writes, Woe to them, for they have walked in the way of Cain, And abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Now, there is a ton that could be said about these verses here, but Judas is shifting. He's giving us three examples from the Old Testament to highlight the hypocrisy of these apostate teachers. He begins with Cain, of course, the first son of Adam and Eve, who killed his brother Abel because of a jealous disagreement over a sacrifice. Now, surely you remember when Abel Abel sacrificed some of his flock of sheep to God, Cain offered God some vegetables from his farm. God accepts Abel's sacrifice. He rejects Cain's. And what becomes clear from the story is that Cain knew that he was not acting in line with God's law. And after Cain becomes angry, before he murders Abel, God asks him, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, you will, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. But even after such a clear warning from God, Cain provides his unwilling, he proves his unwillingness to submit to God. So what we have with Cain is a man who is warned of the consequences of his actions by God himself, but he decided to go his own way regardless. So that's number one. And what's the comparison with the apostates? Well, Jude's looking at this situation with these false teachers, and he's saying they're taking the way of Cain. They understand very clearly, here's what God expects. They'll even give lip service to it by doing something like making an offering that they know is not acceptable, but at least on the outside, it looks genuine. This is the way of these apostates. Jude then brings up Balaam, who takes Cain's sin a step further. Remember, Balaam doesn't just sin against God, but he encourages others to do the same. And the result was that men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down before these gods. So just like Cain, Balaam was faced with a clear statement from God of God's intentions and then decided that what mattered more was what he wanted. And so Balaam was a warning, an example of a man whose greed led to rebellion. He was a hypocrite who, who denied wanting to do anything in rebellion against God, and yet behind the scenes he was willing to sell them all away for silver and gold. Apostate teachers will say all the right things in public They will make the right overtures toward the truth and what should happen and how it should happen, but will work behind the scenes to do that which will ultimately serve them the most. Another evidence we see of the apostates then is that they are greedy. They frequently work for their own gain. That's what we see with Balaam. The third example from Jude is the rebellion of Korah. Now, Korah's story you can read in Numbers 16, he together with a few of the other Levitical priests, they, they instigated a revolt of 250 soldiers against Moses. Now, they obviously hoped that they could overthrow him in some kind of coup against the, the great leader uh, and those who Moses worked with, but their problem was with their hierarchy of leadership. Um, What's the problem when a bunch of false teachers uh, decide they want to work together? Well, all of them want to be in charge. They even accuse Moses of being arrogant in the midst of all this. And so long story short, God intervenes and the earth swallows up all these rebellious leaders and brings them down to the pit alive. And so what we see from Jude is that judgment will fall on any pastor or teacher who loves freedom or money or sex or power more than the faithfulness of God's word. Apostates are rebellious and a horrific ground opening punishment awaits every apostate teacher who succumbs to personal temptation by capitulating to the culture in order to accommodate and compromise their faith. And so Judah is saying, brothers and sisters, hear me on this. These people are here to pervert the gospel. These church leaders reject the word of God. They're out for your money. They want to permit you to have both Jesus and sensuality. And they've already perished long ago. They died with Korah. These guys who are eating and drinking with you were those guys. Be careful. Be watchful. Their ways are deadly. And then he goes on, there's this amazing, uh, in terms of just literature, one of the most amazing descriptions that you'll read anywhere, uh, when he describes what they are. They're waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. I love those lines. Well, very quickly, last thing he shows us that apostates do, they will be judged for their ungodliness, verses 14 through 16. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, they are loud mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. How many times does he say ungodly here? All right, this is an issue. So what Jews actually referencing here is the non canonical book of first Enoch. And he's referencing a section that supports his teaching that God will execute judgment against everyone who perverts his ways. Now, Enoch clues us into the idea that these false teachers were circulating uh, in their own, uh, they, they were circulating this teaching in all their sermons. That God is a God of love and not a God of wrath. Any of those sound familiar? That God would never condemn anyone. That no person or behavior can really be called ungodly. That unconditional love means that God places no demands on his children. That entering in a relationship with Christ doesn't require any meaningful life change. That sounds like pretty much everything we can hear today, right? It's as if Jude is shouting from the pulpit, enough about this silly notion that God does not judge. The ungodly who are everywhere in every generation will be judged. And in verse 16, he tells us how to see the difference between godly teachers like Enoch and those in the church who are destined for destruction. They are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. It's self-explanatory, but the message overall for all of us is beware, beware. We're out of time, so I'll just mention the final. Jude also shows us what God does, and again, very important and part of our encouragement as Christians. We see in verses 24 and 25, now to him, and this is one of the most well-known benedictions. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. And so, first part of verse 24, God keeps his people from stumbling 24b, Christ presents his church blameless before the Father. And finally, verse 25, God is worthy of our complete allegiance and worship no matter what may come. So, brothers and sisters, we have a great God who loves us, who keeps us, who has called us, and who gives us everything that we need to persevere, to grow in our communion with him, and to stay faithful to him, and to avoid the world, the flesh, the devil, and all the godliness, ungodliness that accompanies them. But he also gives us great warnings. Take heed of what you're hearing and what you're being taught, and make sure that it is in line with the scriptures before you. Don't take any man's word for anything that you hear. Study the scriptures, know the word of God, and know what is true. Amen. Well, let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we are so very grateful for your kindness that you have called us, that you have loved us, that you have given us true faith, that you've given us allegiance to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ that you've given us a desire to walk in holiness and godliness, and that you've given us clear warnings from Scripture about what a false teacher is, that they may be marked and avoided. And so we pray, Lord, that you help each and every one of us to persevere in the faith. May it never be that one of us would be seen to be an apostate, that all of us here will persevere to the end by faith, and that you would be glorified in our lives as we seek to live for your glory in holiness. And we pray you do all of these things that you would be glorified, that your church would be strengthened and that the world would know truly that Jesus Christ is Lord forever and ever. And we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org That's ebcfl.org